Amen. I tell you what, I am so, I'm just shocked at how many people came back tonight, and I know some of you maybe not, were not able to be here this morning, but uh, those videos have already been posted, I think, at the church's uh, channel there, but uh, thanks for coming out. It really means, it really means a lot, and Brother Sam, I sure appreciate and love you, brother. You, uh, I, I think fondly of that first conversation we had. I think he said, I've carved out about an hour for you, and four hours later, we were still talking, and it was wonderful. Talk about iron sharpening iron. But, uh, well, it wouldn't be one of my messages if I didn't start out by talking about the Cowboys. You know, the Cowboys played so badly. They, I'll tell you how badly the Cowboys played last week. You know, someone had recently given me a couple of tickets uh, for the 50-yard line of an upcoming game at uh, the Cowboys Stadium, AT&T Stadium. And, uh, but would you believe I, I, I made the dumb mistake? I left those sitting on the front seat of my passenger side of my car, and I was heading to a coffee shop, and I, and I went into the coffee shop, and I, I never should have left them there, but I, I came back, and sure enough, the side window was smashed in, and someone had left two more tickets. So that tells you, <laughs> that tells you how bad, that tells you how bad the Cowboys are. All right, so if you were here this morning, I, I want to apologize. I know I talked a little bit slowly this morning, but tonight I'm going to have to speed it up a little bit if we're going to get it all in. Uh, so I'll try to, uh, try to speed it up if, a little bit if I can. Uh, so the key passage that I want to begin with is Matthew 16, where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the scribes, the unbelieving Jewish leaders of the first century, and rebuking them uh, because they weren't paying attention to the signs of the, of the times. And I think the same uh, caution uh, applies to us today. A lot of people today just don't uh, know how to discern the signs of the times. And that's really uh, what we're doing uh, in my latest work, my latest three books, and in this uh, short conference here uh, today. So we talked this morning about God's plan of the ages just to review uh, we said if you look at a panoramic view of human history, 6,000 years and counting, you see that uh, we are currently living in the last days, the final age before the kingdom age. There will be, according to Scripture, a transitional period that brings us from the church age into uh, the final 1,000-year reign of Christ, uh, and that we call that the 70th week of Daniel. I talked about that this morning. Uh, but, uh, you know, as we think about the age in which we live, the closer we get to the end of the age, the more signs of the times uh, that we're going to see. And so this morning, I talked about uh, 10 reasons, uh, or, or the first five of 10 reasons that Bible prophecy matters uh, more than ever. I just want to mention those in case you weren't here, just to kind of get the flow. But we first started out by talking about granting of statehood to Israel, how key that was in God's plan of the ages. That's such a an amazing event that for 1,800 years there was no Israel on the map, and all of a sudden Israel, just as God's Word uh, prophesied, reemerges as a key uh, factor. And of course, then we talked about the Gog and Magog stage setting, which is very relevant, especially the last couple of weeks with all that's happening uh, in, uh, I guess, the last week, really, all that's happening uh, in Israel, uh, setting the stage for those nations. And we, we elaborated on that this morning. Then we talked about globalism and how really in the last hundred years, particularly since World War II, but starting with the turn of the 20th century, we've seen this shift towards a globalist uh, agenda to try to usher in a one-world system and destroy national sovereignty. We'll touch on that a little bit more uh, tonight. And then we talked about the glaring slide into tyranny, the one-world system that uh, we will see Satan usher in at, at the helm of the Antichrist and false prophet will be a tyrannical one. It will be a one by force and by uh, uh, not good, good measures. 
there will ultimately be a divine globalism, which we'll talk about tonight when, when Christ comes back and rules in perfect peace and justice. But we are heading into this tyrannical regime. And then we talked about apostasy, and uh, especially in the church today, how that is a sign of the times. The church is uh, getting worse and worse. I was talking to someone after the service this morning about the remnant principle and how sometimes it, it seems like uh, we're in a minority, and we are, but that's always true. Throughout God's plan of the ages, it seems like He's always moving in the remnant, right? It was only eight people that got on the ark, for example. Um, so, you know, God always kind of works in the, in the remnant, and there is a remnant today. Uh, we, we might sometimes feel like Elijah and think, you know, am I alone left? Um, but, and I was kind of pessimistic this morning in some of the comments that I made because as I travel and speak at conferences, it just seems like there are fewer and fewer churches like Flint Baptist Church that are proclaiming unashamedly the authority of God's Word. But there are some. Um, but uh, we are the remnant. We are the minority. We need to remember that. So we want to pick up tonight with number six, and that is the great satanic uh, reset. You know, if you haven't been paying attention, the, the decade of the 2020s really started with some pretty rough sledding, did it not? And all of the major outlets were talking about how this is a great reset. Time Magazine, for example, had this picture on their cover uh, talking about how the whole world is being restructured. Major news outlets and key world figures were suggesting that we start using B.C. before COVID and A.C. after uh, COVID or Corona to, to reckon time. The New York Times had that article. The Financial Times of London had a very similar article. Sometimes events happen so fast that their effects are upon us before we realize what's even happening. And here we are in this new normal three years later, and it's almost hard to imagine what life was like in 2019. Michelle Bachman, during an interview with Jan Markell on Understanding the Times, said, we are literally watching the twilight of Western civilization. Now, everybody these days seems to be waking up to the reality that something is amiss. Now, they may not be believers. They may not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. They may not have a biblical worldview, but they know something is not right, which is what makes this such an exciting time evangelistically because we can create a common ground and a, a, a point of discussion for anybody, and then we can begin to show them from Scripture that what's happening is ultimately a spiritual battle. The battle is not against flesh and blood. You know, it's not against Satan's earthly accomplices, his earthly co-conspirators in his grand conspiracy to take over the world. It is a battle between good and evil. It's a battle between God and Satan. Now, it's not much of a battle from God's perspective. As we talked about this morning, he's laughing and holding in derision Satan and his minions who think they can somehow eke out a victory. But it's already, the battle's already lost, but Satan just doesn't believe it. But in the meantime, as we, in the run-up to the to the rapture and the tribulation period, what we see happening, we need to remember ultimately, is a battle in the spiritual realm. And when things are heating up on earth, which there's no question they are, that always means they're heating up in the unseen realm. They're heating up in the spiritual realm. And that's why Paul reminds us that our battle is against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So the great reset is really the Luciferian endgame. This is their plan. Now, they've had other plans before, and as I said this morning, there's no guarantee that this plan is going to actually be what ushers us into the end times uh, biblical uh, prophecy. God's the ultimate arbiter of the timetable, and He may decide, no, I'm not ready yet. But I know that they're putting all their eggs in this basket right now. They really believe they are at the one-yard line, and it's time to, to push it across the goal line. But the Great Reset really constitutes the great satanic Reset, as I talk about in chapters 2, 3, and 4 of Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2, 
the greatest conspiracy of all time is the conspiracy involving Satan, evil spirits, and human accomplices. A conspiracy, of course, is uh, simply two or more people working together to, to do something bad or illegal, usually in secret. Um, so the greatest conspiracy of all, which the Bible talks about, uh, is uh, the grand Luciferian conspiracy. That's their term for it. It's also a biblical term from Isaiah 14. And so, uh, by the way, I want to make sure you understand right up front that I do not believe in conspiracy theories except the ones that are true. And this one is true, and so are many of the others uh, that are uh, out there. A conspiracy, again, is, is, is uh, I get into that in Volume 1, the conspiracy theory conspiracy, where that term even came from. It's really stunning when you think about it. But then I diagram out the Luciferian conspiracy, and uh, if you look at the human elements of it, the human side, Satan's co-conspirators on earth, it starts with a group of maybe six or eight families at the upper echelon. These are the ones that are literally talking with Satan, getting their marching orders from him. They pray to Satan the way you and I pray to Almighty God. They really believe he's the hero in the garden and that, uh, that uh, God is the antagonist, right? Uh, then at the second level, you've got millions or hundreds of thousands, probably a million or so, uh, people that are kind of on a need-to-know basis. A lot of them are well aware that this is, in fact, a satanic conspiracy. They understand the, the satanic rituals. They understand that there are people in dark, smoke-filled rooms sacrificing children and drinking blood today. Now, that, don't, that may be distasteful. It should be, but it's true. We know from Scripture that in the ancient times, they were sacrificing children to Molech and Baal. And uh, do we think that depravity gets better with time and somehow that over time that went away? Of course not. It's worse now than ever before. All you have to do is read chapter 13 of volume 2 if you can stomach it, and you'll find out that there is a real dark side to this attempt to take over the world because Satan's the one uh, leading it. But a lot of the people at this second level have no idea that this is satanic in its nature. They're in it maybe for power or money or fame or other worldly lusts, and, and they may not connect the dots and understand uh, what's uh, really pulling the strings here. And then at the bottom level, you've got many millions, and by the time you get to this level, very few are necessarily aware that this is a Luciferian conspiracy in its very nature. Uh, they have all kinds of other uh, agendas and, and motivations, but they are all uh, key pawns in the game to usher in this one world uh, system. So I go into a lot more detail of that in volume one of Spirit of the Antichrist that kind of sets the stage biblically and uh, historically of this conspiracy. Uh, but if you need any doubt that these folks really do worship Lucifer, let me just give you one example. And this comes from Saul Alinsky. Saul Alinsky dedicated his famous book, Rules for Radicals. You may remember uh, that was a key text in Obama's worldview and mindset. Uh, but Saul Alinsky, who died in 1972, uh, he said, lest we forget at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the very first radical who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively that he at least won his own kingdom, Lucifer. See, that's how they see Satan. He's the one that uh, rebelled against God so that he could get his own kingdom. They worshiped this guy. This, uh, Saul Alinsky, shortly before he died in 1972, he told Playboy magazine in an interview for them that he can't wait to get to hell because they're my kind of people. This is the kind of people that we are dealing with here. So if we want to get back to Scripture here for a moment to kind of lay the foundation before I get into more current events uh, tonight, if you look at human government from a biblical perspective, you see three phases of human government. It starts out with globalism, then it gets to nationalism, and then it gets to globalism. And let me show you where we get this. First of all, 
We go back to the creation, and it was a divine globalism. God told Adam and Eve, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion. And we learned that the whole earth had one language and one speech. It was a globalist world. But what happened in Genesis chapter 10 was God confounded the languages. He spread the people out, and we see the establishment of human government. And then we shifted into a nationalistic government that by God's divine design. Now, for example, Genesis 11, indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Well, now nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. This was the Tower of Babel, the precursor to Babylon, uh, one of the, the key cities that will play a role uh, in the end time. So this was roughly uh, 2242 B.C., about 100 years after the flood. It didn't take long after the flood from Genesis 6 for, God, for the people on earth to once again uh, become so bad that God had to intervene and, 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 and do something. That's the depths of depravity. But we are still living into this day in the year 2023 in God's divine design for nationalism. And until God is ready for us to go back into divine globalism, we ought to do everything we can to resist the globalist agenda. The globalists want to tear down borders. They want to tear down national sovereignty. They don't want to, they want to make us beholden to some governmental universal uh, you know, agency like the UN or the World Economic Forum. That's not God's divine design. We are living right now in a time when God blesses and ordains national sovereignty. But we will see one day a return to globalism. And this return to globalism is going to happen in two stages, two phases, if you will. First, the satanic realm, and then secondly, the divine uh, form. So we read, for example, from Daniel that there will be a fourth kingdom on earth which will devour the whole earth. This is the revived Roman Empire uh, that, will, that Satan and the Antichrist will take, uh, I mean, the Antichrist and the false prophet will take the helm of uh, one day. But when Christ comes back to take the throne at the end of the seven-year tribulation, this one-world system, this globalism will take on an entirely new nature, back full circle to divine globalism the way it all began. Zechariah, for example, the prophet tells us that all the nations shall go up from year to year to worship the king. All the nations. We read in Psalm 72, one of only two psalms attributed to Solomon, blessed be his glorious name forever and let the whole earth, the whole earth be filled with his glory. This is during the time of the reign of Christ. Isaiah the prophet, we know this passage very well from uh, Christmas, uh, but few people uh, fail to see that really the Christmas story only relates to the first phrase, everything after unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, relates to the second advent of Christ, when the government will be upon His shoulder. I don't know if you've looked around lately, but are the governments of the world all under the complete authority and submission to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Not hardly. Uh, Prophet Isaiah goes on to say, of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. So we are coming to an age of divine globalism. So if I overlay this, you know, world, go- this human government, uh, biblically speaking, on the God's plan of the ages, it would look like this. It started with globalism up until the time of the Tower of Babel, and then we got into nationalism, and then someday we will return once again to globalism, rightly so. But right now, uh, right now, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And I really believe, as I look at the signs of the times, as Jesus told us to, that we are teetering right on the brink of this shift from nationalism to the first phase of globalism, 
which of course is that satanic phase. So let's take a look at some of Satan's earthly accomplices and how they fit in to all of this. I won't take the time to work through the whole passage again. We did that this morning. Uh, But Psalm 2 is a key passage, a proof text for understanding the Luciferian conspiracy where Satan's earthly accomplices are insisting on breaking the bonds and and, and cords of God's control. And of course, we read this morning how God is laughing at that. Well, who are some of these Luciferians who are championing the cause of globalism and trying to make themselves rulers of the world? Well, let's take a a look at one that you may be familiar with, but you may not really know his true worldview, and that is Walter Cronkite. Here's a 26-second clip of Cronkite speaking at the World Federalist Federalist Association Global Governance Award. He was receiving the Global Governance Award from the World Federalist Association. And uh, he actually, in this clip, mocks conservative evangelicals, and that's you and me, by the way, who think that only Christ should preside over a one-world government. Listen to what he says. Well, join me. I'm glad to sit here at the right hand of Satan. And did you hear how all of the elites in the audience there just laughed mockingly when he, when he quoted? He was quoting Pat Robertson. We may not agree with Pat Robertson on a lot of things, but he was just sort of the figurehead that came to Cronkite's mind when he's talking about those who think that Christ is going to be the only one who can reign properly over a one-world system. A little bit later in this ceremony, uh, they piped in by video uh, then First Lady Hillary Rodham Clinton. And listen to what she said. Rodham Clinton. Good evening and congratulations, Walter, on receiving the World Federalist Association's Global Governance Award. For more than a generation in America, it wasn't the news until Walter Cronkite told us it was the news. It wasn't the news until Walter Cronkite told us it was the news. Now, that has a whole new meaning when you understand the way the Luciferians have been using mainstream media for decades. I have a whole chapter in Volume 1 about Operation Mockingbird, the history of it, how it came out at the church committee hearings, how then uh, CIA Director George H.W. Bush said, well, we're going to not uh, pay these agents anymore, but we're going to continue the program, and how it continues uh, to this day. At one time, they had thousands of CIA agents in mainstream television, radio, newspapers, and magazines uh, spreading uh, propaganda. So, yeah. Cronkite was right there at the tip of the spear. Another key part of the earthly accomplices in this uh, one-world agenda is the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, Council on Foreign Relations, I I deal with it in a chapter in Volume 2, Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2. But here's a couple of salient quotes from uh, key leaders today. Here's Biden uh, sitting with Richard Haas, who's been the president of the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, since 2003. And uh, Biden admits right here on tape that uh, he works for Richard Haas at the CFR. In the magazine, Uh, I probably should introduce myself to people, everybody. Uh, 
My name is Richard Haas, by the way. Uh, I work here at the Council on Foreign Relations. And I uh, work for Richard. <laughs> <laughs> I work for Richard. Of course, with Biden, you never know whether he was, you know, tipping his hand or just having a delusional moment. But either way, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty telling that a sitting president would say on camera, I work for the Council on Foreign uh, Relations. And then speaking of, well, speaking of... Biden and the like. Let's just leave it at that. Uh, here's uh, Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton, who says openly that the CFR tells her what to do and tells her what to think. Thank you very much, um, Richard, and I am delighted to be here in these new headquarters. Um, I have been often to, uh, I guess, the mothership in New York City, uh, but it's good to have an outpost of the council right here down the street from the State Department. Uh, we get a lot of advice from the council, so this will mean I won't have as far to go to uh, be told uh, what we should be doing and uh, how uh, we should uh, think about the future. I mean, to be told what we should be doing and how we should think about the future. The CFR is a key globalist uh, think tank that really does pull a lot of strings. Now, I'm an equal opportunity uh, offender. I like to, to, to pick on the, Demo the Democans and the Republicans both. So uh, here is uh, Dick Cheney acknowledging that his Wyoming supporters are not too happy about his association with the CFR. It's good to be back at the Council on Foreign Relations. As uh, Pete mentioned, I've been a member for a long time and was actually a director for some period of time. I never mentioned that when I was campaigning for re-election back home in Wyoming. <laughs> yeah, I never mentioned that to my supporters back in Wyoming, but yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm right with you. Uh, so another guy that I mentioned that we, we deal a lot with in my latest book that just came out is uh, Yuval Noah Harari. I call him a wolf in wolf's clothing, so that again is fear of the false prophet. But uh, he is really out there riding the circuit globally. In fact, uh, this week he was uh, appearing at a Mexico City conference, and he was also in Azerbaijan on Monday, and he's just all over the world championing the cause of globalism. Let me give you a few Harari quotes. He says, I think that maybe the most important thing for people to realize about living in the 21st century is that we are now hackable animals. He says, there is somebody out there who is right now trying to hack you. It's not just one. Amazon's trying to hack you. Google's trying to hack you. Coca-Cola, Russia, the American government, the Chinese, they're all trying to hack you right now. He says, forget about school essays. He's talking here about uh, AI and, and large language model uh, AI systems like ChatGPT uh, and how that's become such a deal in academia. I spent 12 years full-time in academia teaching at the baccalaureate and graduate levels, and I cannot imagine what it would be like today to have to deal with this type of uh, a problem. But he says, forget that. Forget the, you know, p students using AI to write their papers. Think of the next American presidential race in 2024 and try to imagine the impact of AI tools that can be made to mass-produce political content, fake news stories, and scriptures uh, for new cults. Here's a just under two-minute clip of some of the, the, the worldview uh, that uh, you know, Harari is out there championing that really he's just the mouthpiece for the top-tier Luciferians like Klaus Schwab. And COVID is critical because this is what convinces people to accept, to legitimize total biometric surveillance. If we want to stop this epidemic, we need not just to monitor people, we need to monitor what's happening under their skin.
what we have seen so far, it's corporations and governments collecting data about where we go, who we meet, what movies we watch. The next phase is the surveillance going under our skin. We now see mass surveillance systems established even in democratic countries, which previously rejected them. And we also see a change in the nature of surveillance. Previously, surveillance was mainly above the skin. Now it's going under the skin. Governments want to know not just where we go or who we meet. Above all, they want to know what is happening under our skin. What's our body temperature? What's our blood pressure? What, what is our medical condition? Now humans are developing even bigger powers than ever before. We are really acquiring divine powers of creation and destruction. We are really upgrading humans into gods. We are acquiring, for instance, the, the power to re-engineer life. Humans are now hackable animals. You know, the, the whole idea that humans have, you know, this, they, they have this soul or spirit and they have free will and nobody knows what's happening inside me. So whatever I choose, whether in the election or whether in the supermarket, this is my free will, that's over. I mean, all this story about Jesus rising from the dead and being the son of God, this is fake news. Yeah, uh, he's a real peach. Um, he... Uh, but he's, uh, you know, that's the reason I t talk so much about him in the new book. It's really stunning some of the things that he's out there um, talking about. And he has an unbelievable following. It, it's just, uh, I give all of the statistics uh, in the book of the, the number of elites and, and just mainstream people that are, are following him. Uh, so let's move on to number seven now. I love this subject, the growing space obsession. Uh, you know, you cannot read God's Word uh, talking about the end times without recognizing that there is a lot of attention on the heavenlies. You know, we see loud voices in the heavens. We see signs in the heavens. We see when Christ comes back, heaven opened. Where does He come from? From the heavens. And we see the armies in heaven. That's you and I following Him clothed in uh, fine linen. So I, I think it's, it's interesting that the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more we see happening uh, up uh, above. And that's why I spent two chapters in the second volume here, the Red Book, all about the paranormal, UFOs, UAPs, the U.S. government, those types of things. So uh, UFOs are real, uh, and I believe in them, and so should you. Now, this shouldn't surprise you. This is a biblical reality. Now, I, UFOs are attested by millions of eyewitness accounts, secret government studies, congressional hearings, video and still photo evidence, entire government buildings filled with file cabinets containing documented substantiation declassified documents, leaked reports, and more. So the question isn't whether UFOs are real. The question is, what are they? Well, I'll tell you what they're not. They're not little green men from Mars or other alien creatures from other planets. They are dimensional. They are unidentified uh, creatures or uh, visions from other dimensions, demonic dimensions, that is. Um, and there's no question about this. People that have been studying ufology uh, for a lot longer than I have, and I've been studying it for 17 years, uh, have known this, but it was really interesting. It wasn't until December of 2017 that finally, after decades of denial, typical of the government, decades of no, we're not studying them, we don't have secret programs studying them, this is all tinfoil hat conspiracy stuff, you're crazy if you think that we deny, 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 and then all of a sudden, 
finally in 2017, the New York Times broke the, the story that, yeah, yeah, they've been studying them for uh, over 70 years, and here's the programs, here's the buildings where all the files are, and then there's now, now it's, it's commonplace, it's been all over the news. Um, you may have seen uh, Tucker Carlson back when he was with Fox News talking about it extensively, but uh, here's CNN coverage of that New York Times article, and this is about a one-minute and 20-second clip. Whoops, am I losing my audio? Huh. Try it again. Well, I guess we're not supposed to play it. I'm not sure what. It's always worked before, but somehow I've lost it. Oh, well, that just gives us more time to talk about some other stuff. So here's some screenshots from the USS Nimitz Carrier Strike Group off the coast of San Diego. This is from November 2004. This one they called the Tic Tac. Uh, Commander David Fravor uh, talked about this. Here's some FLIR footage, forward-looking infrared cameras from that same strike group. Um, here's one called the Gimbal. This is from 2014 and 15, the Roosevelt Carrier Strike, strike Group, this time off the east coast. Uh, but the, these sightings have actually, these are not new. What's new is the government's admission of them. And so what we see is things that are beyond human control, and it's got the government scared. Now, they've been scared for a long time because most people in government don't have a biblical worldview. They have no way to interpret this data. They just think, what's going on? There's some higher intelligence out there from Mars, and it's going to invade us. And so we've got to we got to do something about it. So it was no coincidence that back during the Trump administration, we launched a sixth branch of the military. In my research, I talked to someone from the Space Force who admitted to me off record that the official reason for starting this was not just to provide satellite support and support in the atmosphere for traditional ground wars, but rather because they are quite worried about the, the, all of this technology or whatever you call it that's out there that is doing things that are physically impossible, that violate all of the normal rules of science and, and, and physics, and, and, and they have no idea what this is. And no, they don't think that it's just Chinese or Russian. You hear that, some of those talking points on TV. They know. In fact, recently there was a, a meeting on Capitol Hill, and uh, I was told that six of the ten people that met in this meeting admitted that they are now leaning towards the thought that it's dimensional. Now, these are not believers. They don't understand demonic realm versus the angelic realm. They don't understand the Ephesians 6.12 model of, of the principalities and powers, but yet they're now saying this can't be just some biological group that's kind of coming into our uh, atmosphere. This has to be something from a portal. But there are all kinds of uh, you know, evidence uh, for this. Back in uh, 1997, there was a uh, huge sighting. Uh, thousands of people saw it. It was captured on video over Phoenix. It's often referred to as the Phoenix Lights. Uh, and this is just one uh, of many. Uh, so I encourage you to read that chapter in, in volume 2. It's chapter 9. It goes into the history of it. Why is all of this happening? Well, I believe, uh, doing my best to interpret it through a biblical lens, that Satan, when he saw World War II, remember, Satan's not omniscient, he's not omnipresent, he's not omnipotent, uh, he's angelic, he's not confined to time, space, and matter, he is a fallen angel, uh, and so the demonic realm is largely observing things that they see. So what did they see at the end of World War II? Well, they saw two massive atomic bombs. Well, that 
that can be seen from way out there in outer space. So that got their attention. He sends out reconnaissance missions from his demons to go see what's going on. They begin to pick up on all this chatter about Israel. Sure enough, Israel becomes a nation again, and that gets his attention because Satan knows God's blueprint, which is that Israel, as we talked about this morning, takes center stage once again in the end times. And so Satan says, ah, we're getting close. So now we need to we need to do more. We need to ratchet this game up. And so that's when we see the dawn of the modern UFO era with uh, Roswell, with uh, uh, Kenneth Arnold sightings in Washington that happened about 10 days apart, and I go into both of those in the book. I don't think that was an accident. In fact, if you really start to look into it, 1947, and really even before then, in the, during the height of the war, you, you had the Foo Fighters and all kinds of other unexplainable phenomena that was happening in the skies. But really, from World War II for the next 10 years is when we begin to see all kinds of things flourish. You had the big Washington, D.C. UFO flap. You had all kinds of examples that I give in the book. And I think that's demonic. I think Satan is readying his demonic realm for what comes next. And, uh, and so I think we're seeing an intensification of this uh, battle. And so, as I said, when things heat up on earth, which they clearly are, uh, that means they're heating up in the heavenly. So, you know, we had the U.S. Uh, Space Force, but uh, Trump's by, by no means the first president uh, to kind of play a role in this issue of, you know, the growing space obsession. Uh, here's a clip from Ronald Reagan from September 21st, 1987, during an address to the 42nd session of the U.N. General Assembly in New York. And listen to what Reagan said. In our obsession with antagonisms of the moment, we often forget how much unites all the members of humanity. Perhaps we need some outside universal threat to make us recognize this common bound. I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. Jimmy Carter, when he was campaigning, talked about his um, personal UFO sighting. It was the darndest thing I've ever seen. It was big, it changed colors, and it was about the size of the moon. We watched it for 10 minutes, but none of us could figure out what it was. One thing's for sure, I'll never make fun of people who say they've seen unidentified flying objects in the sky. Another as president, I'll make every piece of information this country has about UFO sightings available to the public and the scientists. I'm convinced that UFOs exist because I've seen one. I have a whole chapter, a whole section in the chapter on UFOs about U.S. presidents and UFOs and their connection. That's some fascinating uh, stuff uh, in there. Uh, but another aspect of the growing space obsession is the private space travel now. You know, we are really interested in uh, space. Uh, uh, look up sometime, uh, the, the search for NSA and fast walkers. It's fascinating uh, what NSA has come out and said about their filters uh, that they have to turn off on all of their spy satellites that they have uh, because there's so much activity uh, unexplainable in the atmosphere uh, that's not visible with the human eye. At this, it's not in our atmosphere. It's the next level uh, that they have to turn off those filters. A lot of activity going on in the sky. Of course, uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek, I might mention the famous 2023 Balloonapalooza that, uh, that we all experienced. But the bottom line is we tend to be looking up more now, and I see that as a sign of the time. Then we got the gathering storm of financial collapse. I mentioned this morning the, the Great Reset, and uh, we talked about geopolitical reset, but a part of their satanic reset is this economic 
aspect uh, as well. Uh, Klaus Schwab has said we need to regulate finance at the global level. We need changes in our economies. In fact, he comes right out and says in his latest book that just came out last year that cryptocurrencies could advance our environmental objectives and the policies that support them, and they could be used to accelerate the demise of the U.S. dollar. That's what they want to do. That's why they've said as part of their Agenda 2030, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy about it. So the economy is absolutely teetering on the brink. Every headline says the same thing everywhere you look. Uh, We are on life support, to be sure. Uh, It's just a matter of time when they're going to pull the plug. Um, If you look at our national debt, for example, and and I've been uh, talking about this for about two years now, in particular in the context of CBDCs. I've done some uh, lectures on digital currency, and I have a chapter on that in the brand new book. Uh, but it's, as every time I do it, I go to the usdebtclock.org. And when I first started doing this, which was only a year ago, it was $31 trillion and something. It's now $33.5 trillion. I mean, it just, it, it's already way past sustainability, and there's no turning this thing around. The car has already crashed through the guardrail and is going over the cliff into Big Sur. You know, it's just not, it's not coming back. Uh, people just don't really seem to be able to understand the types of numbers that we're uh, talking about here. It kind of reminds me of the famous quote by uh, uh, the late Senator Everett Dirksen from Illinois on the Congress floor uh, one time. He said, quote, a billion here, a billion there, and pretty soon you're talking about real money. Well, yeah, yeah, you are talking about real money. You're talking about $33 trillion. We've got inflation. We've got food prices on the rise, beef prices on the rise, gas prices. I'm so thankful to be here uh, in Texas where the gas prices are Uh, less than they are in Colorado, but they're still pretty bad. And then uh, we could talk about government surveillance, police lockdowns, tyranny, global surveillance, all of these uh, types of things that are a key uh, facet of the Antichrist uh, regime uh, someday. Uh, And part of that is also going to be controlling uh, the finances. So for the sake of time, let me shift into that. I wish I had more time to talk about uh, the history of money in this country. I get into that in great detail in the, in the new book. I hope you'll take the time to read uh, that chapter. It's really fascinating. Nothing is as you perceive it. A lot of people don't realize that the Federal Reserve is no more federal than Federal Express. It's a privately owned bank owned by six families. Uh, and uh, that's why every dollar bill that you uh, pull out of your wallet, it says right on there, uh, this is a, uh, a debt instrument. It says this is a Federal Reserve note. It's a debt instrument. Um, I, I love playing games with uh, young people at uh, fast food restaurants. I'll, I'll pull up to the drive-thru window, and uh, that'll be, you know, $12.57. Oh, great. Do you take Federal Reserve notes? Oh, no. Oh, no, we don't. Sorry. <laughs> or do you take Federal Reserve notes? Oh, no, I, I need to check with my manager. I'll be right back, you know. Yeah, no, it's a Federal Reserve note. It's not money. Uh, and so that's what they're trying to do with CBDC to make it all trackable. Remember, God's Word says that during the reign of the Antichrist and the false prophet, no one's going to be able to buy or sell without government approval. So it's really a tool of total enslavement. Everything will be tokenized. When they control your money, they can control everything. So your carbon footprint will be tokenized. Your social credit score will be tokenized. Your medical status, you know, how's your cholesterol? How's your blood sugar? Uh, have you had too much coffee? Well, I'd be in trouble if they based my ability to spend money on that. Your water usage, they can tokenize everything and they can control it instantly. It really is a full-spectrum 
of planetary control. And they've been working towards this end for a long time. And I really believe, as I've studied this and, and, and tried to piece together how it's going to play out, I really believe they're ready. It, they're just waiting on the right time. There's not anything else they need to do infrastructure-wise. They've got all of the digital currencies out there. It's kind of like throwing up your Christmas lights all across your yard. When you get them all where you want them, then you plug them all into one central power strip so you can turn them all off and on at the same time. I think that's what they're going to do at some point very soon. They're going to connect all of these different systems and uh, then have a worldwide uh, control grid. The only question is, will that happen before the rapture or after the rapture? And I think we need to be wise and be prepared uh, for this cashless society. Here's Brian Moynihan, the president and CEO of Bank of America, admitting uh, during a 2019 conference in New York that we want a cashless uh, society. Last year, uh, President Biden issued an executive order where he wanted uh, several federal agencies to give a report on how they would roll out CBDCs. And the gist of it was, as they turned in their reports, they all said, we need to completely re-engineer all of our financial and uh, payment uh, systems. Uh, Here's a speaker, Michael Evans, who's the president of the Alibaba uh, Alibaba Group. It's a Chinese multinational technology company. Uh, And he says in this clip that, absolutely, we're going to have an individual carbon footprint tracker. It's not quite here yet, but it's coming soon to a digital ID near you. Where are they traveling? How are they traveling? What are they eating? What are they consuming on the platform? So individual carbon footprint tracker. Mm. Stay tuned. We don't have it operational yet, but this is something that we're working on. Not operational yet, but we're working on it. Uh, Tom Mutton, who's in charge of the CBDCs for the Bank of England, said they could be pretty beneficial in preventing activity which we see as socially harmful, right? Uh, Here's Augustine Carstens. Uh, This guy's really amazing. I have several quotes from him in the book, but he says, the key with a CBDC, central bank digital currency is what a CBDC is. It's basically digital currency run by the privately owned central banks is that uh, the central bank would have absolute control on the rules and regulations that determine its use. Um, uh, this is, a, uh, this is a, uh, Pippa Malmgren, longtime globalist from a, a rich heritage of globalist, a globalist family. She says at the World Government Summit in 2022, so I mentioned the one from this year and the one next year. This is going back two years. She said, uh, I'll say this boldly, we're about to, ba- to abandon the traditional system of money and accounting and introduce a new one. It means digital. It means having an almost perfect record of every single transaction that happens in the economy, which will give far greater clarity over what's going on. And when she, she's, this is, I listened to it, her video speech, and I just transcribed it, but when, I, when, when she said clarity, I think she mispronounced control, because that's really what they mean by clarity control. Catherine Austin Fitz says, I would describe this as a slavery system. Technology gives you the ability to institute a complete control system. If they don't want you to be able to use your money more than five miles from your home, that's it. Your money will turn off five miles uh, from your home. Just recently in August, Bill Gates uh, announced MOSIP, which is a modular open source identification platform, which is essentially his version of a global digital ID. See, the digital ID is connected to the digital currency. You can't have one uh, without the other. And, and this is what they're talking about with all of this uh, Internet of Things and the smart cities and smart technology. Amon Jabi said a smart city is just a polite word for an invisible open-air uh, concentration uh, camp. So we could say much more about that. I do want to mention here before we go to questions, uh, technocracy. That's the subtitle of 
uh, the new book of technocracy, again, is just rule by technology. Because Satan does not have almighty powers like our Creator God does, he's going to have to use some man-made means to exert control, and that's technology. A technocracy is just ruled by uh, technology. Uh, and by the way, uh, that's where AI comes into play, and that's why we, we have so much about that in uh, Spirit of the False Prophet. But here's one example uh, of just how good AI has gotten. Uh, OpenAI, who makes ChatGPT, also makes DAL-E, which is an image-based, not language-based AI. You give it a prompt and it'll create a picture for you, right? Uh, so they gave DAL-E the prompt, to the a, you know, this AI, the prompt, show me a j- picture of Jesus flipping over the tables of the money changers. And here's what it gave them. So I'm not sure it quite understood what they were, what they were asking, but nevertheless, that's, uh, that's what they said. But Aesop, uh, six centuries before Christ, famously said, the tyrant will always find a pretext for his tyranny. And today, in this dictatorial dash toward the new world order, that pretext is convenience. Uh, that's the carrot, uh, entertainment, increased profits, other bells and whistles that uh, kind of tie us to our digital devices and tether us there in a way that makes it difficult to pry ourselves away. Uh, this big new Brzezinski it's a name you should know. I have a lot to say about him. He wrote the book uh, Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. He died in 2017, but he was very much a leading uh, globalist. He worked both sides. He worked in uh, Republican and Democrat uh, presidential uh, administrations, uh, arguably one of the most influential foreign uh, policy figures of the 20th century. In his book, he has several things to say about where we're headed. He said, the post-industrial society is becoming a technotronic society, that was his word, a society that is shaped culturally, psychologically, socially, and economically by the impact of technology and electronics. Again, a technology is just a form of governments, governance where technocrats are chosen to be in charge. Brzezinski said, a society like this is going to be dominated by an elite uh, who have superior scientific know-how. And the elite would not hesitate to achieve its political ends by using the latest modern techniques, keeping society under close surveillance and control. He said, soon it will be possible to assert almost continuous surveillance over every citizen and maintain up-to-date complete files containing even the most personal information about that a citizen. He said, persisting social crisis, the emergence of a charismatic personality, and the exploitation of mass media to obtain public confidence will be the stepping stones in the piecemeal transformation of the United States into a highly controlled society. One of the most chilling things he ever said right before he died, uh, he said this on an interview, I think it was CNBC, he said, quote, today it is infinitely easier to kill one million people than to control one million people. The, the dual, double-sided terror of depopulation and control has always been part of their agenda. Well, I didn't get to my last one, but you'll have to read that chapter in, uh, in the books, the gender surrender uh, movement. But uh, this, is a part, this has a key role to play because AI does not have gender, right? So they are marginalizing gender in an in-your-face attack on the image of God and men. Remember, mankind is image bearers. We are made in the image of God. Now, that image became tarnished when we sinned, but through a relationship with Jesus Christ, we can have that image restored. And to the extent that we are believers walking by faith and not by sight, living out, uh, in, walking in the Spirit, living out the fruit of the Spirit, we reflect God's image. And Satan sees humanity, God's highest pinnacle of creation, and he hates it. He absolutely hates us because he hates God. 
And so what's he doing? He's attacking humanity. That's what transhumanism is all about. It's about simultaneously marginalizing humanity. Oh, they're nothing. Male, female, it doesn't really matter. We're just uh, algorithms, like Yuval Noah Harari says. We're just algorithms, like bananas, he said. You know, you can change them. You just, once you get to know humans, you can control them. You can hack them. They're just other algorithms, you know. Uh, So he's marginalizing us, but at the same time, he's trying to uh, destroy us. That's what the trans uh, movement uh, is all about. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll close with, with some, you know, encouragement here. So th- there they are, just to put them all on the screen. Uh, I think 10 reasons Bible prophecy matters now more than ever. Uh, we talked about all 10 of those. We just didn't get to touch much on the gender surrender uh, movement. But what do we do with this information? Well, first of all, the most powerful motivator is fear. Uh, and the Luciferians know quite well how effective fear can be. Uh, but don't fall for it. I found this quote I've used a couple times in recent conferences that was really uh, meaningful to me, and it comes from Marie Curie. Marie Curie is the first woman to win a Nobel Prize. She's from France, um, died in the early 20th century, but uh, she was also the only person to win a Nobel Prize in two scientific fields. But she was known for her honesty and her moderate lifestyle. In fact, Albert Einstein once said of Curie that she was probably the only person who could not be corrupted by fame. And she said something that Uh, was very encouraging. She said, nothing in life is to be feared. It's only to be understood. Now is the time to understand more so that we may fear less. See, God has not given us a spirit of fear. We are told to prepare. Proverbs 22, 3 says, a wise person sees trouble coming and prepares for it. But though we are to be prepared, we're never to be scared, ever. Fear is not of the Lord. Uh, We ought to look at these things and be excited that this is just Bible prophecy coming uh, true, right before our uh, very eyes. And so we ought to heed the, the warning of Scripture to be sober and vigilant, knowing that our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now is not the time to cower in fear, live in a cave, uh, drop out of society. The time is short. That means there's an urgency to the gospel. There's an urgency for the church to do what God wants us to do. We need to be out there sharing Christ more now than ever before. That's why we give out gospel tracts everywhere we go. And I don't want to take any of them home. So go by our table and grab a handful of tracts and and pass them out everywhere you go. They tell the good news about salvation uh, through Jesus Christ. But God's church needs people that are willing to run towards the roar, as they say. You know, I, I love this quote by John uh, Shetty. He said, a ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are for. And we don't need Christians that are trying to stay in the harbor. We need Christians to realize that greater is he who is in the world, than, uh, great, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And so, before we shift into questions, uh, I know we're not going to give an altar call per se, but I know we've got a lot of new folks here tonight. Maybe by God's providence, you came with a friend or you were kind of interested in all of this end times uh, hubbub that's out there, wanted to know a thing or two. I don't know where you are in your walk with the Lord, but I know this. The Bible says very clearly, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. There's only one way to have eternal life, and that's by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for your sins. It's a one-time moment in time. The moment faith meets the gospel, you're born again. Uh, Your home in heaven is secure. Your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. You're uh, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's a one-time moment in time, but it doesn't happen through your own works. You can't earn it. You can't be good enough to do it. You can't overcome your own sin problem. You have to receive the gift. It's a free gift paid for by the blood of Christ, and you receive that gift by faith. If you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, 
as uh, Brother Sam said this morning, today's the day of salvation, right? Today's the day. Don't put it off. We're, first of all, we're not promised tomorrow. Life is but a vapor, right? But secondly, uh, the Lord could come back. And if you've not trusted Christ, if you think it's hard now to believe the gospel, imagine when deception reaches unprecedented heights. And there's not a, for a period of time, there's not a single believer on the earth for a short time after the rapture. So thanks so much for letting me uh, be with you tonight. Again, the latest books are Spirit of the False Prophet, which is hot off the press from last month. And then uh, last year, we put out the two-volume set, Spirit of the Antichrist 1 and 2. So uh, should we transition into a few questions here? Does that work? All right. By the way, if anybody needs to slip out, I understand maybe uh, you allotted an hour tonight. By the way, I understand it's first pitch started probably a little bit ago, but uh, that's all right. Um, uh, if you need to slip out, it won't hurt my feelings at all, but I want to allow time for some questions. So we've got some microphones set up in these two aisles here, right? These two here. If you have a question, if you'll make your way to the microphone, that's for two reasons. Number one, I'm deaf. You may have noticed I wear hearing aids and I have a hard time hearing, but also the folks live streaming and the video that we're recording, it won't pick it up if you try to ask a question from your seat. So who's going to be bold and ask the first question? Anybody have a question? Okay, here we come. That's all right. <laughs> and if you have a question, you can be making your way to the microphones. That'll save us some time. Yes. Okay, I have two. Is two okay? Is she on? Okay. We'll get real close to the mic. Okay. There we go. I have two. Is, okay. Can I ask two? I'm sorry. We have a one-question limit. No, I'm just kidding. Just <laughs> I'm just quitting. I'll let you know on the second question after I hear the first, okay? okay? One at a time. Okay. Do you believe that the Jews will be able to take back the Temple Mount in the very close future? Do I believe what now? That the Jews will get the Temple Mount back in oh, the, coming, in the coming months or year? Absolutely. Oh, uh, in the coming, I can't tell when, but I think the trajectory is definitely that way, and that's what Bible prophecy teaches. When the treaty is signed, starting the 70th week of Daniel, I believe there's a lot of evidence that that's as much a religious treaty as it is a military one. By the time that's signed, it's all, in all likelihood, uh, Israel, with God's help, has already vanquished all of those uh, enemies, like the Battle of Gog and Magog. And so I think that the, the testimony of Scripture is that for the first half of the tribulation, they're going to be going up to the temple and worshiping, and then it's at the midpoint that the Antichrist says, enough's enough, you can't worship your God anymore, I'm God, worship me. So yeah, no, they're going to definitely reclaim the temple mount and rebuild the temple, yeah. All right, I'll, I'll go ahead, and after thinking about it, I've decided to allow your second question. Okay, thank you. Okay. Because I had seen that with the Abraham Accords that mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia had been in negotiations with Israel about the Temple Mount. And then, of course, in the last week, they pulled out of those relationships. Yeah. So my second question is, I know a lot of people I see on social media, they're believing what has happened is Ezekiel 38, 37, 38, 39. I'm not so sure that's where we are with the circumstances and the players don't seem right, but it does seem very similar to Psalms 83. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I just had Bill Salas on our, uh, Salas on our program last week. Uh, thank you, by the way. Um, and uh, we talked about Psalm 83 and that war. Um, 
Uh, he's written a brand new book, by the way, that gets into a lot of those wars. Uh, so uh, I, I'm not sure that I would assign what's happening right now directly anyway to either of those passages, Psalm, 30, uh, Psalm 83 or Ezekiel 38, but I definitely think they're setting the stage and kind of paving the way uh, for it. Um, and, uh, and by the way, there's some behind the scenes happening that indicates Russia is very much a part of this latest, uh, you know, this latest incursion. Uh, so who's to say? Time will tell. Um, but no question that uh, Gog and Magog seems to be uh, kind of getting ready to happen. That's my take on it. Yes, sir. Uh, Woody Clawson. Uh, I'm not very smart, but I'd like to get your opinion on Daniel chapter 11 about the king of the north and king of the south. Where do you think we are in that chapter? Yeah, so Daniel 11 is an interesting chapter because part of it is fulfilled historically, and then part of it, it shifts, and you see this shift in verse 36. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's, it's indicated, we translate it, then, then the king, and then I think from 36 all the way to the first part of chapter 12 is dealing with the, the Antichrist. Uh, in my book, What Lies Ahead, I have an appendix called a sequential order of end times events. And I think that the battle that is described in chapter 11 up until verse 35 is essentially a, a Western alliance that I speculate, and it is just speculation, but I think it makes a lot of sense, will be led by the future, the guy that becomes the Antichrist. And so what you have is the battle of Gog and Magog, this northern alliance coming against Israel. We know from the Bible that God's the one that supernaturally intervenes and, you know, drops the planes out of the sky or whatever it is and makes sure that Israel's protected. But this Western alliance, and I think that's what's going on here in uh, Daniel 11, comes in and sort of takes credit for it. And they sort of say, hey, look, we, we stopped, we saved Israel, and we, we prevented World War III or four or whatever it might be by then. And so I think that catapults the leader of that Western Alliance to world fame. He's, everybody loves him and thinks of him as a hero, and that's what makes him the prime candidate for the Antichrist. But that's, that's I think, just one way of several that we could connect the dots biblically, but that's my quick take on Daniel 11. But the book, uh, What Lies Ahead, goes into more detail. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Um, I have a couple of practical questions. The first one would be, um, how much of this should we know all this stuff that you talked about, how much should we study to be able to talk to people about it? Or should we just worry more about the plan of salvation and being able to talk to people about fear of what's going on? Or should we know about these things? And the second question is, what should we do personally to prepare? Do we prep? Do yeah. we <laughs> get lots of guns and yeah. all that? You know, so, you, know, you know, just in a general sense. Yeah, no, great questions. Or, and I'm, financial I'm also. What was the last thing you said? And financial also, you know, yeah, the whole yeah. thing. So, uh, absolutely, we need to know this stuff. It's part of the Bible. We're supposed to study the whole counsel of God. As I talked about this morning, you know, we, we know the beginning. Why wouldn't we want to know the end? I mean, you don't pick up a novel and read two-thirds of it and then put it down. I mean, you might if it's a terrible novel, I suppose. Um, but generally speaking, we like to know how things end, and that's what we should know with God's Word. He put it in there for a reason. Again, 16% of the Bible is unfulfilled prophecy. So if you're content to know 84% of the Bible, then don't ever study Bible prophecy. But if you want to know 100% of the Bible, study it all. Um, as far as the balance between… First of all, we should never worry. We're, we're, we're not to worry. That's the, Jesus makes that clear. But uh, I think knowing and knowledge is, is critical. And uh, if you see a train coming down the track, you know to jump off the tracks. And so 
Preparedness is a biblical concept. Chapter 9 of the brand new book is all about preparedness. Uh, we, we have a free NBW preparedness guide that we've given out for years uh, that we incorporated into that chapter, so now it's actually in, in a book. Um, but if you don't want to buy the book, you can go to our website, uh, click on the store, click on the free section. We have lots of free documents and free items there that you just put in your cart. You don't have to have a credit card. You get them and they get emailed right to you. But one of those, our most popular one, in fact, is the NBW Preparedness Guide. And so it talks about all kinds of things. It's 12 pages. It goes into different scenarios that we've run through, different ways to respond, whole lists of supplies, food, everything you can possibly think of to prepare. We need to, to be thinking in terms of the what-ifs of this world. We've become so conditioned, especially as Americans, uh, that uh, we can just hop in the car and run to Walmart uh, that I think we're ill-equipped for what could very well be happening if the Lord tarries us coming. You know, we need to go back to the, you know, the pioneer days and the, the days of Little House on the Prairie and Ma and Pa the, as they headed west and, you know, Pa set out in the, in the morning and if he didn't come back with a deer, you didn't eat that day. You know, that was the way it worked. And so, and the kids worked all day and, uh, and, and, and it, was just, uh, it was just about the way society was. So I think we need to think through the scenarios. Now, it doesn't mean, prepping doesn't mean dropping out of society, just the opposite. It means eyes wide open, you keep doing what you're doing, you you send your kids to school if, you, if, they, if college is what you have for them or they have for themselves. You, you, you go through life. You live your life. You pay your bills. You, you enjoy life. You share Christ with others. You try to be a light in this perverse generation, as the Apostle Paul said, but all the while knowing that at any moment the bottom could fall out. And when it does, if you've thought through it and made preparations, you're going to be way ahead of the game, the game and I think you'll be uh, prepared for it. As far as finances, I'm not a financial advisor by any a stretch, but uh, I have uh, talked a lot about it and, and, and studied it myself a lot. And my general principle, if you followed our ministry, you've heard me say it a thousand times, if you can't touch it, you don't own it. <laughs> so if you cannot touch it, you don't own it, period. So if you're content to have your entire portfolio be in a series of dosh, dats, dots and dashes or ones and zeros on a computer server somewhere, uh, that's fine. But just be aware that someday you may wake up and log in and it'll all be gone. Uh, because it's all digital. It's all not real. They can, with a few keystrokes, wipe it out. So I think you should personally, I, I would be uncomfortable leaving more in a bank account or a digital portfolio than you're prepared to lose. Uh, I think you have to leave some there to function. You know, you got to pay your bills. You got to, that's the way the world works right now. But I would highly recommend transferring a lot of that to digital portfolio. This is, again, just my opinion. I'm not a financial advisor into tangible commodities that you can touch. Uh, so that would be my answer to that. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, sir. So as, um, as you kind of, so like China said not too long ago they overcounted their population by about 100 million people and um, they're kind of closing their borders off, it seems like. And then there's also seem to be a lot of investments coming back into the United States. A lot of companies are pulling out of China. Apple recently said that they're pulling out, um, out of at least that area. Um, do you see this as a positive thing for the United States where they're reinvesting in, in companies over here? Or is that something that you see as part of the plan of like uh, the World Economic Forum or something like that? Yeah, I think it's a broader uh, plan for the Luciferians in general. See, it's not a monolithic system where there's a top-tier people that are pulling the strings and everything happens exactly like they want it. There are a lot of competing agendas. And right now there are three central locations for this one-worldism, this globalism. 
China, Russia, and the United States. Now, above them all are the Luciferian elite that really want to bring them all down and build back better. You know, it's the Hegelian dialectic that just destroy it and build it back better uh, into, according to their design. Um, but there are a lot of rogue elements of this, so it's hard to predict what China's going to do or what Russia's going to do or what America's going to do. Uh, on paper, China's economy is not a whole lot better than America's, uh, but again, it's all fake. It's all fake economy anyway. It's all just printed uh, money. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if we could just run to our Xerox machine and print money whenever we want to? And even better if we could then sell it to our neighbor and make a big chunk of real money on top of it, you know, because we sold you this worthless piece of paper. Well, that's what the Fed does. Every time the Fed prints money, we borrow it as a government and have to pay interest on it. That's why they're happy to do QE3, QE4, QE5, QE infinity. They'll keep printing money as long as we want them to. Um, so I, you know, I don't know about China. I know that their economy is struggling as well, but I, I think all signs point to some type of unfreezing event in the near term. I'm not setting a date. But I've been saying, if you listen to my stuff for the last five years, you know I've been saying probably in the 2020s, based on what they're saying anyway, some unfreezing event that causes an end of the world as we know it scenario. It could be a common, it probably will be a combination of things. It could be economic, it could be military, it could be biological, it could be terrorist related, we don't know. But I think you're beginning to see the rumblings of it. So that's my best guess. Anybody else? Yes. I'm the short person in the room. My name is Christina Drury, and I'm a precinct chair here. I work in politics and several different issues, election integrity, protecting our kids. Um, we've talked about the World Economic Forum, who Governor Abbott is a member of. And oh, yeah. I don't know how many people in this room know that, but you need to know that your governor is a part of that. We tried to educate people. I love what you brought to the stage today. I love that people are getting informed. My problem in, in politics is we don't have enough people that will get engaged in government. We don't have enough people that will fight. It looks as simple as sending an email or making a phone call. You don't necessarily have to go to Austin to prevent bills or prevent the WEF from taking over Texas. We had legislation. We had legislation for transactional gold that would have protected us from CBDC, but we didn't have enough people that would send emails and make phone calls to put pressure on our legislators to pass that bill through and get it signed by our governor so Texas could have some sovereignty on our currency here. Yeah. So my question is... Um, what do we do? How do we engage politically? Is that essentially... What would be your advice to a congregation about church and state. I think there's some confusion about church and state, and people think that they shouldn't engage with their government, that they should just stay home and pray about it, when we really need an army of Christian soldiers fighting for our biblical values that this country yeah. was founded on. Yeah, so... Yeah, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not sure if you'll like all of my answer, um, but I've, I've studied this extensively. In fact, back in 2012, I was uh, sometimes booed on the stage and disinvited from conferences for taking a stand, uh, you know, p politically, uh, uh, you know, against the, the fake elections. And I was talking about Dominion back then. You know, now it's a household name. Uh, so my view is I don't believe in pretend voting. I mean, I'm an adult. I don't play pretend games anymore. And so I'm not going to pretend to vote uh, so that I can pat myself on the back and say that I voted. 
If I believe my vote really counts, and I would say this to anybody, if you believe your vote really counts and it's a, uh, you know, a system that is accurate and true, you ought to vote. We have a biblical duty to, to, to vote. It's a privilege in our country to have that freedom to vote. A lot of people have shed blood for that freedom to vote. But unfortunately, when they went to digital vote tabulation technology many decades ago, it became pretend voting. Amen. And an 18-year-old kid can be paid $50,000, spend 15 minutes in a cubicle in Cleveland and change the entire outcome of an election in California. That's the way the game works. So was 2020 rigged? Absolutely. I have a whole chapter on that in volume two. That's why I put that on the screen. I talk about whose fingerprints are on the founding of America as well as fake elections and what's happening today. Uh, but 2016 was rigged. Uh, 2012 was rigged. I mean, they've all been rigged, and that's well documented if you take the time to look at it. So I think you ought to vote uh, as long as you are confident that your vote really counts. Uh, if you have come to believe that in your particular scenario, whether that's local, municipalities, school boards, Congress, state, and by the way, you're spot on about Abbott, and DeSantis is even worse if you know it, and then we find out that Christy know him. They're all bought and paid for, every one of them. Uh, if you really take the time to look at it, don't buy into the fake right-left paradigm because uh, you're just going to be playing right into their hand. Uh, but whatever, wherever you're, you know, whatever system you're in, if you really believe that it, it, it works and counts, you ought to absolutely vote. You have a moral duty to vote, I think. But I think equally, if you know that it is rigged, you have a moral or at least an intellectual duty not to. I mean, you realize they have elections in North Korea and Iran right? If you lived there, would you vote? <laughs> well, guess what? That's the way it is here. And I'm sorry to say that. That's the part you probably don't like, but uh, that's the way it is. And, and, you know, you don't have to agree with me. Do your own research. You may come to a different conclusion. But the reality is Congress, the Senate, the Supreme Court, the White House have been controlled for a long, long time. It doesn't mean they're not occasional, godly, patriotic, Bible-believing uh, men and women who want to serve this country and believe what's best for our country every now and then. But as a whole, they're controlled. And by the way, I, you know, I've done personal interviews with some of the top uh, p politicians. Back in 2012, uh, I had the chance to interview a lot of the Republicans. Remember that was, or 2016, excuse me, 2016 was the year we had 17 candidates, and Trump was the one left standing at the end. But I interviewed Rick Santorum, I interviewed Ted Cruz, I interviewed uh, uh, several others. Uh, you know, and, and I, I, just telling you, you know, Ted Cruz's wife's a member of the CFR. Uh, DeSantis, uh, you know, he was the one in charge of Gitmo, signing off on all the human rights violations that were happening there. So these guys are all. He was skull and bones too, by the way, uh, at uh, Yale. So, I mean, I think you just have to do your own research to whatever extent you can make a difference. As we await the Lord's return, you absolutely ought to do it. And there are still plenty of. Uh, arenas where we can make a real difference for the glory of God in politics. But yeah, I just think the days of if we can just elect enough Christians to Congress, we'll change this, this country around. I, I think that train's left the station. That's my view. Well, we did work on a hand count here in Smith County, and I know that it's going to take 800 people to volunteer to work on a hand count, and we can get rid of the, the machines. 
But getting people involved to engage and help towards Amen. those kind of efforts, that's where we have problems. So they did get rid of the machines, you said? No, no, no. no. We can get rid of them. Yeah. But no, we're going need to need 800 yeah. volunteers yeah, yeah. to come into polling locations. No, they can't control county. everything. You're right. There are other success stories like that. I've spoken at a lot of different uh, uh, groups and, and uh, so forth. And so, yeah, there are success stories. So definitely, if you, if you can and you can stop the digital aspect of it, that's the answer. There's got to be a chain of custody of the ballots. There's got to be the provenance, you know, all, all of that so that we can actually uh, see the vote. Right now what we have are selections, not elections. You know, you all dutifully go into the poll, you push a button or put in a card, and then you go home and you wait for CNN to tell you who won. And it's all predetermined. It's just who they tell you won, you know. All right. Last, well, we got, do we have one person here and one there? So let's do two more questions. And then uh, we'll start here and then here. With the recent events in Israel, um, it went through my mind that maybe the globalists were involved in that. Um, I know that Hamas has the potential to do these things. They were heinous, uh, the things that they did. However, um, it looks like there might have been some kind of an inside job. Uh, yeah. The military so, was sent to other borders and, you know. Yeah, I, I have talked about that extensively this last week. I had Leo Holman on, uh, and uh, we both said the, the same thing. And he's an award-winning uh, investigative journalist, uh, been on all the major news networks. Um, I, I know some people disagree. Amir Safari, for example, disagrees. I just I have an honest disagreement with him. I think he's dead wrong on this. This was absolutely an inside job. Yeah. I'd sooner believe in Santa Claus than than think that somehow these you know maniacs and parachutes could could hold at bay the IDF and catch them off guard. The IDF are some of the most prepared, you know, te te technologically advanced uh, military in, in the world. Probably either number one or two yes. behind America. No Masad, way. No way. Masad this was absolutely staged. I mean, or you know, planned. There had to be an inside job to make it happen, and I think it's part of a bigger agenda. That's my my opinion. So, yes. Thank you. And and do you think that uh, they will ever let President Trump come back? I mean, they they're so powerful. <laughs> well, I hate to say anything here at the end that would make you not like me, because I think you kind of like me right now. So I'm going to pass on commenting on Trump, but I do have. Um, uh, part of me, well, I, I don't even want to say that, but um, I do have a section in the, new, in the volume two, the red book, uh, all about how does Donald Trump fit into all of this. Um, I'd encourage you to, to read that. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I was just going to bring up, um, you bring up the Hegelian dialect. Um, bring up what now? The Hegelian dialect oh, the you mentioned. Hegelian dialectic, yeah. um, and controlled opposition is something that is very real. And uh, I just feel like the level of propaganda um, on most of the mainstream um, is so prevalent. It, and I, I think a lot of people don't quite realize just uh, how much control um, is under, you know, Satan himself, but these world organizations, almost all the content that we're digesting, especially our kids. I mean, if you look who created Netflix and the people that were behind it, uh, they're very smart. Um, Oh, yeah, social media, Facebook, all of that was, they, they're in it for the long game. They've been planning this stuff for a long time. It's, that what I say is it's never about what it's about. It's never about what it's about. So the Hegelian dialectic, Friedrich Hegel, um, 
very common technique. As you mentioned, it's, it's often called uh, controlled opposition or problem-reaction-solution or synthesis-antithesis, uh, thesis-antithesis-synthesis. Um, but essentially what they do is they have, a, they have a goal. They have something they want to roll out. And the easiest way to do that is to get people to beg for it. So they create a problem intentionally knowing that we will have a predictable response, please save us from the boogeyman. And then the way they save us from the boogeyman is by doing exactly what they wanted to do all along, but they got us to go along with it. So lots of examples of that. I have a whole chapter on the Hegelian dialectic in the first volume, the green one, volume one, uh, historic examples and, and so forth. So thank you very much for bringing that up. And I didn't get to it tonight. It was in the presentation, but I, I skipped over it. So we got to get into it anyway. So... Thank you. Thank you guys so much. I really, really appreciate it. Um.